Hey everyone, welcome to our talk of the week. Uh, Alice and I are here at Hope Chapel. We're going to be hearing from Alice, and it was so good being uh, back in the building, inside the building on Sunday. And uh, we spent some time uh, reflecting and chewing over um, something around purpose and around how we gather together as church, following on from my talk from last week. And uh, there were some really rich things there around appreciation of the, of the gathering in, in a fresh way and kind of recognizing how that sits alongside the other um, ways in which we are and meet as church in homes and, and other settings as well. So it's been really rich and we're going to continue with these, uh, this series on purpose. Alice is speaking this week and next week and then we'll be picking it, picking up on it and, and, and developing it some more on the Sunday morning, a little bit in the, in the first half and then also in the second half with some, with some time to pray for each other and so on as well. So, um, uh, there's a few PowerPoint slides that are going to be coming up through this. If you're watching the video, then you'll be able to see those. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, then the um, PowerPoint slides are available on uh, the Hope website where the talks are stored there. You might have found it through iTunes or some other podcast platform. But that's if you want to see the slides, Alice will describe them. But that's where you can find them. Great. So we're going to jump in. Uh, Lord, we pray that you you feed us and you inspire us and you lead us through what Alice teaches now. And um, and we want to celebrate, recognize and walk more fully into our purpose. That's what we're all about here. So we pray you, you build build that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, so lovely to be able to journey with everyone on, on what purpose is and how we can connect with our purpose. And also so lovely to be back in the building on Sunday. Really beautiful. Never been so happy to be in a cold building. You, My whole childhood is all about having to try and get church building's warm, and now it's all about the fresh air. So that was like a great development. Anyway, we are looking at purpose. I'm going to do a part one and part two. Part one this week, purpose and the human longing in the Hebrew Bible. So a bit of a macro, how do the biblical authors in the Hebrew Bible, which we've come to call the Old Testament, communicate about purpose. And then next week, part two, purpose and the human longing fulfilled in Jesus in looking at the New Testament claims. So we're going to be sticking quite disciplined in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament this week to end on a cliffhanger with the hope and desire and hunger to see what happens and what the claims are and how that longing is fulfilled in the New Testament. But firstly, I want to go straight for two problems we might even have in the first place with the idea of purpose. Secular ideology, and it feels like it smacks of privilege. So I want to deal with those issues we might have with purpose first, and then look at what the biblical authors seem to be communicating about God's purpose So the first one is a very famous writer. He actually wrote a trilogy. This is the third in his book. He's written a lot. He's a historian, Yuval Harari Noah. But he writes in his first of the trilogy, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, quite a concise communication on the, the logical outcomes of secular ideology, a thoroughly materialistic atheistic worldview as pertains to purpose. And I think it's important to to say it is what it is. And one of the things I quite like about him is he just takes every single thing to its bitter end. If we really do believe what we say we believe, that we're in a materialistic 
universe, then the outcomes for what it is to be human are this. So, as far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan, and if planet Earth were to blow up tomorrow morning, the universe would probably keep going about its business as usual. As far as we can tell at this point, human subjectivity would not be missed. Hence, any meaning that people inscribe to their lives is just a delusion. And I think he sums up the pervasive, immersive ideology, worldview, lens through which was beginning to come in in my education pretty much across the board with millennials and with Gen Z completely. That is what everyone is taught in any wealthy or privileged country around the world from the very beginning. So that is really worth addressing and naming if we're going to do a series in the 21st century in a country of wealth and privilege globally, comparatively globally, and talk about purpose. We can't avoid that issue. It's the elephant in the room. So the first thing I would say in combat to that is there's this, the problem with it is there's this fundamental cognitive dissonance with it. By that I mean, even if intellectually we know that should be true about our lives, if you watch how humans behave, believe, or what they desire, how the, what they want, both now individually at micro individual levels and macro throughout history, they simply don't act as if their chemical accidents kept alive by a dying star. They act as if they were there's something about meaning and purpose. Hence, he has to address this issue because it drives humanity. Meaning and purpose and significance is something about what it is to be human that suffering really matters. That when we, we want to change the world, we really do want to change the world. When we mess up, it really affects other people. There's something so fundamentally, instinctively significant about what it is to be human that it just doesn't sit right with this sort of ideology of pervasive materialism. So we have this crisis, and there's this article, Why Should We Stop Telling Our Kids to Follow Your Passion, by Janet Stone in the Sydney Morning Herald, just August the 20th this year, about this issue of work and the pressure of work and the desire to find satisfying and fulfilling work. Do we go with passion or do we go with skill? But the article never addresses the problem, of course, is these lovely young people are told when they're very little, you're unique, you're special, then about by nine or ten, you're like, it's all a lie, get over it like Father Christmas, you're just a chemical accident made alive by a dying star, get over it. And what we're having now is 16 to 24-year-olds, it's the 66% of them in this, uh, a couple of reports, 2020 report of Australian youth suffer from anxiety as about uh, as a result of being stressed by their future because there's this wrench between them. Intellectually, I'm, I'm nothing. I don't mean anything. But actually, intuitively, I want to find work that's satisfying and fulfilling. I want to give myself for something greater than myself. Or even I just want to accumulate a lot of wealth and the primary career path for a lot of Gen Zs to be an influencer. But there's something driving humanity that suggests we don't actually believe we're insignificant. 
they predict that by but but this that generation will be looking at 18 different jobs in six, six different careers in their lifetime so there's this sort of the crisis that's come out of this cognitive dissonance on the micro level is is anxiety is disruption is an ache for something but an inability to know how to find it. Do we follow our passions? Do we put in our 10,000 hours and get our skills? How do we access that thing that I'm not supposed to believe in, that I'm significant, I have purpose, and I have meaning? Then on the macro level, we see it in human behavior, this relentless drive to build heaven on earth. Any ancient dominant empire, any recent one, it's as if the people instinctively know there's a problem that needs to be solved and the best way to solve it is for the particular dominant empire to build heaven on earth. The Hebrew Bible speaks a lot into the, the great empires of the age, particularly the Egypt. There were some false Eden narratives around Egypt in the Hebrew Bible and the false Edens that Babylon was trying to build on the backs of the justice and oppression. But also since then, we have Alexander the Great in in the Greek Empire, his project of Hellenization to unite the whole world around Greek culture and language. We have Pax Romana, which is the setting of the New Testament. More recently, we have this communist manifesto to get rid of those the brutal ruling classes and have a release of the workers of the world to unite, to have a world that is just and fair. And we also, of course, have the American dream. So I'm just going to read a quote here, and I want you to just think about this idea of building heaven on earth and how that has always been the same, but how it's still here today. Mutual learning will replace clashes, and coexistence will replace a sense of superiority. Hear this, hear this, call to bring heaven on earth. It would bring peace, for it would boost mutual understanding, mutual respect, and mutual trust among different countries. This initiative would add splendor to human civilization and help build a new era of harmony and trade. We should foster a type of international relations featuring win-win cooperation, and we should forge partnerships of dialogue with no confrontation and a friendship rather than an alliance. Can you hear that vision? There's a problem and we need to build heaven on earth. The solution, of course, now, some of you may have picked up, that was President Xi in the Beijing Forum in May 2017, the initiative being the Belt and Road Initiative. What's wrong with the world? What can we do? China has a solution, a community, a shared future for mankind. These people aren't acting like their chemical accidents made alive by a dying star. At micro and macro level, people behave intuitively in such a way as they, they, they have this sense of meaning and purpose. There's a problem in the world and it needs solving and different dominant empires are going to solve it through their particular understanding of what heaven and earth on earth looks like. But as again, as I said that, the second problem is, is it just smacks of privilege? Who are these people who can sit around thinking of meaning and significance and purpose when there is global, we know there's one billion people currently in the world living in extreme poverty. So I just want to quickly pay attention to that and honour that. It might seem like a little trajectory, but I think it's important that we understand where we are globally in terms of poverty and how that pertains to purpose, particularly how God looks, connects 
with the poor and brings purpose. So in his brilliant book, I really recommend it, Factfulness by Hans Rosling, recommended by Ben Burgess and Melinda Gates, which I thought was rather nice. Um, very poignantly, he actually, he, it finally is published in 2019. He talks about five problems the world do actually need to face. It's a very positive book based on, on the, on actually looking at data of improvements over certain metrics of our physical material lives. But he does acknowledge at the end there are five key problems that could thwart human progress. Number one, 2019, this is published, a global pandemic. That made me pay attention and read what he's saying. He, he had died before and his son and daughter-in-law, who we worked with, actually got the book out in 2019. So in 8000 BC, there were about 5 million people. 1200 AD, skipping to that, there's about half a billion people. On the whole, people would have lots of children and because of death and disease, war and starvation, they probably end up just having two that survived to adulthood. So you didn't get much population growth. Then you hit 1800 and you, the world is, it, people have, have, have multiplied and reduced to a certain extent, but there's still about 1 to 1.5 billion people. And at that point, 85% of the world's population are seen to be in extreme poverty according to his metrics. He has four different levels. Really recommend you to look and read how he sees the world. He doesn't see it as the West and the rest or the rich and the poor or anything like that. It's far more nuanced about the way he reads the world. But in level one, he, define, he defines all the levels according to transport. So level one, extreme poverty means you have to walk. Level one, in terms of access to water, means you have to find it somewhere, a tap or a stream. In terms of cooking, you have to use firewood. In terms of sleeping, you have to sleep on a floor. And in terms of eating, you have the same plate of food every day in the, in the rest of the family, in which case you don't eat at all. That is, 85% of the world in 1800 were living like that. There were 15% that were living above that in what, what the book describes as level two, three, and four. By 1960, the, the population had doubled because healthcare interventions were beginning to mean that people who weren't, wouldn't have survived before healthcare interventions pre-1800 with the, with the development of medical care, pretty rudimentary compared to now, but even by 1960, that meant only one in two people were in extreme poverty, but more people on the earth because more people had survived childhood mortality. We get to now 2017, we have 8 billion people on the earth, we have 9% roughly in extreme poverty, roughly a billion people who live like that every day. The trajectory in the book is that I'm, I'm blending two different statistics he uses in his book about population growth and stats in extreme poverty. 2040, there'll be 9 billion because the people have already had children that have medical interventions. And so they are people growing up. They've already been born, but they're growing up and surviving childhood death and disease and mortality, of which the, the, but the billion will go to half a billion in extreme poverty. And then the population, this is out. This is just for fun and for extra. By 2100, if it all goes, usually by the time you get through level one, two, three, level four, which most of us live in, is you have running hot and cold running water. You can sleep on a bed with a mattress. You can have access to a car as your transport if you want. And you can eat any, any kind of food any day or night that you want. And by 2100, 11 billion people will be in, and sorry, and at level four, two people on average have two people because they choose to live like that. 
They've gone through the population growth of, of a lack of medical, inter- sorry, of increased medical intervention, but still fear over loss. So they have more children. That's where the population growth comes in level two, three. But by the time you get to level four, you, on average, people have about 2.4 kids. I think it is a 1.8 or something. So you, that's why we know, unless something very odd happens, by 2100, the world will be populated if everyone's going, moving towards level four and they have uh, 11 those 11 billion people in the world. So in that context, knowing now there's 1 billion people in extreme poverty and level two and three, a massive shift when you're in them, $2 a day on level one, it goes up to $4 a day on level two, but for someone like us in level four, you know, having $3, we don't even notice the difference. So I'm not in any way denigrating what it is to be in level two or three, but I'm just saying, and I agree with what he's saying, is they, they, People in those levels have more access to material benefits than we think they do, and their children have more access to education and childhood vaccinations. Hence, the world is getting better. There's more population, but far less in extreme poverty. So on the one hand, it does seem like to conceive of purpose in this context amounts to privilege. Most people throughout most of history up to 1800 were just trying to get through the day. However, what I love about the Hebrew Bible is God speaks to people who are probably living on level one, maybe level two, you get the occasional three or four, but those those bottom levels, and he speaks to people who've been oppressed and enslaved. They were the wealthiest of the, the three wealthy classes of Judah, which becomes the root word for the Jewish community. They were oppressed and enslaved by the dominant minor, a dominant majority, Babylon, and taken over there, and a prophet called Jeremiah says to this oppressed minority, both the poor who are left back in the land and the people who are in exile in Babylon, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And in other words, God absolutely fights to lift us materially out of extreme poverty. He wants people to live lives where, like any good parent, where they would want their children to live on a, a decent bed and not spend all hours grueling through the day trying to access water. And to, to find those things are simpler because of technology and medical interventions and to, to have everyone educated. He wants all that. Um, and, and he wants to inject purpose into people. He operates at the material and the spiritual. They're actually the same. Heaven and earth are one in him. So purpose is just as important, even for people who are struggling with their material context. In fact, he says to Peter, who wasn't necessarily poor, but he was a, a fisherman subject to the oppression of Rome, which wasn't great. It was horrible, heavy taxation. He says he speaks to him and he calls him to leave his nets and follow him and speaks purpose and calling into his life. So we can be confident that God doesn't just bring about purpose for us and have disposable income or disposable time. In fact, he prioritizes not only alleviating people's material needs, but also speaking purpose into those who the world would say are more poor or dispossessed. And that's what's so powerful about this message, that we do matter, we're all significant, we're all imagio deo, collectively and individually made in the image of God. So what does the Hebrew Bible say about purpose? Well, what's really brilliant is it essentially 
says what we're created for. Then it says what the problem is. And then it says what the solution, the promise of the solution is and leaves everyone on a cliffhanger a few hundred BC when it's all finally compiled and then in Hebrew and then translated into Greek. Humans are created by God to partner with him in establishing human flourishing on the dry land. In another words, heaven on earth. It's another way of capturing heaven on earth. But what's so sharp and astute and distinct about the Hebrew Bible is it says there are two ways we seek to build heaven on earth. We have a tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whereas we seek to build our Edens, our false Edens, and our own wisdom and our own understanding to rule in independence from God. A strategy that, as all ancient dominant empires have shown, is causes incredible death, destruction, and devastation. So whilst the, the, the Hebrew Bible diagnoses our purpose, we're called to partner with God to establish human flourishing, it also diagnoses the problem. In the, firstly, in the Eden narratives, the fact that Adam, humanity, and Eve, life, both choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to, to redefine wisdom on their own terms, to rule in independence from God. So does every character in the Hebrew Bible. It's a, it is a narrative of people who are called into intimacy and partnership with God to bring heaven on earth, but consistently fail. But what's beautiful about it is this also this thread of promise right from that first Eden narrative where God promises Eve that an offspring will come who will crush the head of the one that seeks to seduce us to rule in our own wisdom. And all the way through, there's the promise of a human who will come, an anointed one, a Mashiach, who will perfectly partner with God and establish human flourishing. Why on the dry land? There's something about the ancient world that understood solidity and stability was on the dry land. That comes to be, if you like, a metaphor, an image for God. Because the sea was a violent and chaotic and crazy place. In day two narrative, the seas are split and day three dry land appears. In the Exodus narrative, the seas are split and dry land appears for people to walk out of slavery into freedom. In Hebrew poetry, seas are used interchangeably with violent people. So the psalmist might cry out, the seas engulf me, violent people attack me. And so you see what we're trying to, what the message of the biblical authors is, is partnering with God is to establish human flourishing, not in the chaos and disorder of the human condition outside and independence from God, but human flourishing on the dry land out of intimacy with God and partnering with him, choosing to define good and evil on his terms, not our own, choosing to trust him. That is the essential message of the Hebrew Bible, and it leaves us with a one a scroll called we now call one and two chronicles. It's the final book. Starts with the damn humanity and ends up with a layer. Let us go up. This vision of human longing for a human who will not fail, but will succeed in establishing human flourishing through partnering in intimacy with God. That said. There are four narratives, four characters who have a lot of narrative time in the Hebrew Bible, we've come to call the Old Testament. 
And I, it's good to pay attention to why. When you're do, doing, writing something which kind of claims to explain the history of everything, to spend an inordinate amount of narrative time on four key characters and to see those four key characters actually echo and reflect each other. They're very different and their journeys are quite they're different. But there's also enough similarity for us to think because the Hebrew Bible authors work through repetition and echo and, and contrast and and are communicating through through these patterns. Is God trying to communicate something through these four people about what it looks like for us as individuals to connect a micro-purpose with the macro-purpose of human flourishing? So wherever you are in the world, whatever you're doing with your day job, whatever situation you live, you can never out-play, out when, uh, don't know what the right word is for that, contending for human flourishing. That is, that is never going to be ever topped by anything else God invites you to do. It will always be within the vision of that. But unlike those dominant empires that were trying to do it on their own wisdom, the invitation of God is to do it in partnership with him. That said, there are these hints, and this is what we're looking now particularly, that God has a purpose for individuals that connects with that bigger calling summed up by Jesus. We're always called to love God and love our neighbours ourselves. That's never in question. But there may be specific ways that each one of us finds that purpose. I don't want us, none of us want us to go in to application now. I just want you to be immersed in these four narratives of these four characters in the Old Testament. And as we're looking at them, just be open to what we're noticing. Pay attention to the similarities, the differences of their journeys, because there's enough similarities for us to glean. Maybe there is a message about what it looks like to move into God's purpose of us coming out of our dream and vision to build our Egypts and our Babels and our false Edens and come into building human flourishing on God's terms rather than our own. So the four characters are Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David. Some of you may have heard of them, some of you may not. And each of them start, if you like, almost like I've put this image of like a mountaintop, a valley, some people can call it a valley of humiliation, and then a mountaintop. It's not that simple with humans. Humans are very complex, and what I love about the Hebrew Bible is it pretty much always ends ambiguously. As I said, the macro picture is fake human failure, but there's a degree of breakthrough that all these characters achieve in partnering with God to fulfill the destiny of human flourishing, that I think we can pay attention to the journey they go through. So, for, And what their shared story is, the first thing is there's always a, there's a sense of promise over their lives. It comes in completely different ways. Abraham is a direct promise, but he's 75 He's, a, he's called out of the post-Babel nations, that tower trying to build heaven on earth in their own wisdom at the end of the primeval history, the universal history, Genesis 11. He's called out of that. He's probably a moon worshipper, certainly a polytheist in the Mesopotamian region. He's called out of that directly and revealed to the, the, the God of what comes to be Israel, Yahweh is the living God. He calls him to a new Eden, a new land, a promised land, and to be a blessing, to reveal God's blessing to the nations at 75. Then we have Joseph at 17 years old, so a completely different time of life. He has two dreams where all his brothers and his family bow down to him. 
And then we have Moses, who's very different. Again, he's a, he's a, grows up as a prince in Egypt, but he's actually ethnically Hebrew. And he is torn in part by seeing how the Egyptians are oppressing his Hebrew family and friends. And he actually is driven to kill an Egyptian. So it's not like a calling from God, but there's a righteous sense of injustice in him, which is acted out in an unrighteous and violent way. And then you have David, who again is a shepherd boy, more akin to the age of Joseph, maybe even younger, where a Samuel, an anointed prophet, an actual official formal prophet in the land of Israel comes to him and formally anoints him, albeit in the secret places, that he will be the next king of Israel. So you see these promises over these lives, these moments where it's almost like a bit of clarity comes as to who they are, what they're about, and how they in their micro lives are to connect with the macro calling of God. And then they just go through this process, which is literally, pretty much in all cases, feels like it's downhill all the way. Utterly opposite to this idea of the career ladder to success, the way up, the only way is up. Just down, down, down. Abraham probably has it a bit easier, but he is 75. He has to, but he, he wrestles with the, with the extraordinary cultural um, stigma, but particularly with Sarah of infertility for many years. He's promised a son, so eventually he takes, uh, they both actually decide to rule in their own wisdom and take Hagar and produce a son through her, repeating that Eden, that tragic Eden narrative, who was probably enslaved as an Egyptian when he went over to Egypt and lied to defend himself from how the Egyptians would treat his wife. So it's this like catalogue of errors and Abraham's exposed and finally comes to the end of himself. It says he fails nine times at the tree of testing. He takes life into his own hands through that, that downward spiral of exposure of his character. And then finally he breaks through. He has Isaac as his son through Sarah, miraculously conceived by a hundred. The fulfillment comes and the fulfillment is vindicated when he trusts God enough. He doesn't rule by his own wisdom. He trusts God enough to be willing to sacrifice Isaac, trusting that God can raise him from the dead, trusting in the wisdom of God, even to trump human wisdom. So he has this extraordinary process, more, if you like, of exposure of the, the levels of unbelief and the levels of desire to take destiny in his own hands and make things work for him and operate in self-protection until he comes to that place of peace and powerlessness, acknowledging he can't make it happen. Only God can. And then this prolific fulfillment. And nowadays, if you just count Jewish community and Christians, it's two to three billion people that would adhere to Abraham as a biological, physical, spiritual father. And that doesn't even include Islam, who, who call, they call themselves an Abrahamic religion. Unbelievable, prolific fulfillment. Unbelievable painful process to get there, both of exposure of his own failures, but also the sacrifice, the prep, the place of coming to total release of control and surrender and be willing to sacrifice his son. And then we have a very different, but there's a, a resonant process with Joseph, who um, is this beloved, favoured son who has brothers who are so jealous of him, his older brothers, that they actually want to kill him and just stopped 
by a couple of brothers saying, well, let's just sell him into slavery. So he has this horrendous, it, it, it's sort of 13 years from when he's he has the dream at 17 to being sold, hated by his brothers, almost killed by them, then sold into slavery. He's prospered and then he's falsely accused. He goes on to, ha- to a political prison. And, and 13 years later, he... He's actually, it's 11 years later, he predict, he prophesies two dreams of people also in the political prison, he gets it right and says, please remember me. Please remember me before Pharaoh. He knows this destiny, but he's still trying to get out of the prison in his own wisdom and understanding and timing. And he has to wait two more years, 13 years after the dream, overnight. The Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. The, the political prisoner, he remembers Joseph can interpret dreams. Let's get him out. And overnight, he becomes second in command in Egypt, the prime minister, and actually says that he is the father of Egypt. He not only protects Egypt from the famine that is to come, but in the narrative of the known world. So a prolific fulfillment of that promise that he'd be a leader. It wasn't just his brothers that do eventually bow down to him, but the entire known world. He becomes a leader. And then Moses has this, this, as I said, it's, it's, it's sort of like a sense of destiny, but he was doing it in his own wisdom. He killed an Egyptian for treating one of uh, a Hebrew slave unjustly. And he wanders for 40 years in the desert looking after sheep. But then there's a moment that God speaks to him. He reveals to him in a burning bush that doesn't cry out. Actually, I do want you to deliver the, the, the Israelites. I have heard their oppression and their outcry and their injustice. And I do want you to go and deliver them from slavery in Egypt. Not only does he completely blow out of all the water comparison with that killing of one Egyptian, which did nothing but probably increased oppression. But when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, he not only delivers them, if you like, by God's strength into a new nation, but that becomes the, it's still celebrated today, 3,500 years later by Jewish communities around the world, and becomes the overarching metaphor through which Jesus saw what he came to do to bring that fundamental deliverance from the chaos and disorder and violence of life outside God to split the seas and bring humanity through his death and resurrection into human flourishing on the dry land. Talk about prolific fulfillment, but an absolutely intense and often painful process. Some of them didn't fully achieve that peace that we're looking at in the, in this image. Some of them um, maybe didn't come to their sense of powerlessness, but it felt like there was a tipping point with them where there was sufficient breakthrough in that place of surrender and consecration and trust that meant they were then raised back up and became conduits of prolific fulfillment. As I've said, the overarching narrative is that humans fail in the Hebrew Bible. Hard to hear, but I'd be preferred to be told the truth than to not know what the problem is. As someone recently said, 50% of solving a problem is actually acknowledging the problem in the first place. And the problem is humans try and do life in their own wisdom. And it creates chaos at best and injustice and oppression at worst. So we see there's a promise and then there's this process, which is often painful. It can be marked by good moments with all of these four. There were good moments, but essentially it's painful to the point almost of total surrender and utter despair. And then there's breakthrough. And I think David's 
particularly shows us that he has an anointing to be king and then for 13 years he's persecuted it's a, it, you could call this political persecution you could even call it spiritual abuse because Saul and David they're designed to be spiritual leaders over a spiritual nation as well as political leaders over a political nation for 13 years he was chased by the man who should be fathering him who should be nurturing him who should be releasing him to be the next king because Saul was so so bound up in jealousy and so for 13 years he's chased. He's, he's not only chased out of Israel, he has to hide. He actually befriends some enemies and starts fighting for them until at one point they're like, you might turn away from us. Even his enemies who become his friends then betray him. And then this horrific, he goes out on a raiding party. He has 400 long men stuck with him through it all, discontented and in debt, and they're with him. And they go back to their camp. All their women have taken, all their possessions are taken by the, these raiding party of another tribe and the, his, his, the people who have stuck with him all the way through these 13 years they just want to kill him because they're so depressed and, and downhearted and devastated by the trauma inflicted on their family and their possessions and he's, he is just at the end of himself and there's this amazing phrase he just found strength in the Lord in Yahweh, he strengthened himself in Yahweh he came to that point that that was the only place he could go and it was the place he went. Everything changed. He mobilizes his men. They go. They recover all the women and children and more possessions and plunder. There's a battle in the next narrative. And Saul dies tragically in battle. And David comes king virtually overnight. So there's this promise, this sort of sense of something quite specific. There's this process and then there's a, a, a place in that process of letting go of peace, of acknowledging our powerlessness, which is a great phrase that the recovery community use. Just acknowledging we are powerless to make the promise fulfilled in our own understanding. We've tried it and it didn't work. Didn't work for Abraham. Didn't work for Joseph. It didn't work for Moses. Didn't work for David. There's a moment where we have to let God promote us, if you like, raise us up and and bring the prolific fulfillment that only he can, the abundant fulfillment. As we know that David becomes, he ushers in a golden age in Israel, and Israel the, 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 the nation always looks back to David and then his son Solomon touching on Eden. They were close to recovering Eden. They, they failed for multiple reasons, but they become, David and his son Solomon become precursors. They become that's that silhouette of a human, an anointed king, a Davidic king in the line of David, in the line of Judah, who would truly succeed where all these other humans had failed. I just want to name at this point that what these people went through is 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 not. It's not, it, it's not superficial. It wasn't like we ran out of blue rolls when the pandemic hit. These were brutal, scarring, traumatic, life-devastating life years. I'm going to say them, and I know we either walk in them or we know people who will, that no words can express this. I don't even want to say words to try and express beyond if you're in this, we stand with you. And if you're not in it, stand with someone. Don't try and don't be trite. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane, just a little taster for next week. He just, he just needed his friends to be with him. 
but these include these traumatic seasons in these people's lives, in these characters, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, in these ancient texts. They included infertility, cultural shame, political persecution, spiritual abuse, and slavery, oppression, and poverty, homelessness. This process is not pretty. I don't think it's right for us to analyse it or apply it. I just think what the Hebrew Bible wants us to do is observe this process. And the fact that four characters seem to have a similar journey. By the end of it, they're not all squeaky clean. Joseph, he actually starts, sows the seeds of, 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 of enslaving in his solution of how to bring all of Egypt out of famine. Moses, his anger still isn't fully dealt with and he doesn't have the faith to lead people into the promised land. David, when he's king, he forgets that he's designed to lead the people to war and he commits adultery and murders his best friend and then covers it up. These, 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 this is, the, the overarching story is not about us, it's about what these humans were like. And I want us to remember that because we rushed to application. But at the same time, we can be convinced and confident that Paul says, when he speaks of the Hebrew scriptures, Paul, who had had met, if you like, the fulfillment, the prophetic fulfillment of that human who would come and succeed where others had failed. But he speaks of them as wisdom literature in in, in his letter to Timothy, his mentee, that help us in our life of faith finding restoration in Jesus. They help us. So let this image help us, even if it's just to observe and immerse. So that is part one. Purpose and the human longing in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible brings a worldview that says that every human has purpose, both individually as the image of God, created in God's image to partner with him and bring about human flourishing, but also collectively as the whole billions of humanity all reflect the deeply complex, multifaceted, glorious being of God. But it also shows us why we're still in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, having narratives about trying to create heaven on earth. Because there's, there's a problem and, it, and, and humans tend to fail at achieving human flourishing because they want to do it in their own wisdom and in their own understanding and on their own terms and redefine good and evil according to what suits them. And we come to the end of the Hebrew Bible with a sense of human longing. Please, can a human come? In that great book of Daniel, right at the end of the original order of the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, near, near Chronicles, at the end section, he talks about a Ben-Adam, son of man, who will come and he will represent God well and he will partner with God and every other form of kingdom will have to come and bow at this way, this only truly successful way of building and recovering heaven on earth.